Praise the Lord for such a wonderful time of worship that we have together. It is always a privilege, always a joy to be here to share the Word of God, especially with you. And I will ask you to open with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Please pray with me before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, it is such a pleasure to call you our Father. It's a joy. And we are your children because of Jesus Christ, because of your Son whom you sent upon this earth in order to redeem us and in order to adopt us as your children. Father, and we have been studying over hundreds of years of this doctrine of adoption, and we have been in awe of it because it is outside of our norms, human understanding of how it is God, who is creator and sustainer of the universe, decided to forgive, decided to cover the sins of his rebels, and not only that, but also to adopt them into his family. What a wonderful, joyful doctrine it is. Lord, and we come to you and we pray that you would help us to understand it, not only with our minds, but also with our hearts. It has so many implications and so many ways that we live our life understanding it, it correctly. And Lord, we pray that we would get it even deeper, that we would love you and we would respond to and walk with you as with the Father, as you meant it to be. Lord, I pray especially for those people who are here and they have never tasted this joyful relationship with you, intimate relationship as a father's son, as a father and daughter. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, you would give them faith to see it and accept you as their Lord and Savior and be saved through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Give us all grace today. Amen. Well, it's a special pleasure for me to preach on adoption. It is truly a wonderful, wonderful, glorious doctrine that we see in the pages of Scripture. But I want to remind you where we were over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, Max has taken us to John chapter 1, and he showed us through Scripture that God has sent His Son in order to show us the Father, in order to show us the attributes of God, in order to show His character, and He has done it in the best way. Even over after millennia of time, after receiving the word of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ has shown it in the best way. And then last week, Tim has taken us to Hebrews chapter 10, and he showed us that the purpose that Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to this world in order to cover our sin, in order to atone us, in order to cleanse us from all sins, in order to take the sin upon himself and give us his righteousness. And today, I would like to speak to you about another doctrine that is not even necessary for our salvation, but it is amazing grace, which is adoption. That God himself sent his son, Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into his family. It is a joyful, joyful doctrine. There's one way that this doctrine is different. Because when we speak of this doctrine, we truly can relate we speak 
of our own intimate relationship. We don't speak that, yes, I was justified. But now we start calling God our Father. And our relationship with the Father as son and father, daughter and father. And it is joyful. J.R. Packer once wrote this. Quote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Now, you may be wise and you may be intelligent. You may be given understanding, intellectual understanding of all the doctrine of salvation. But if you never talk about your father, if you never honor him, if you never speak of this intimate relationship that you have with him, your relationship and your actual salvation may be at question. That's what he's saying. But even if you are a believer, this doctrine and dwelling on the doctrine, understanding the doctrine of salvation and doctrine of adoption will lead you in different ways and will help you and mold your life in different ways. For example, you will be praying differently. You will be praying not to just God who is righteous and just. You'll be praying to him as your father, as your dad, right? The way you're dealing with your personal sin, it will be affected by how you understand this doctrine of adoption. How you relate to your father will actually affect how you raise your children. How much patience you're going to have toward your children if you understand the relationship you have with your father. It will affect how you will relate with your spiritual brothers and sisters because you are of one father. It will affect how you will witness about Christ to others. In many, many aspects, it will mold you, it will help you. So I pray today that the Lord will help you understand it a little bit better, a little bit deeper, this doctrine that we see on the pages of Scripture, doctrine of adoption. Please read with me from chapter 3 of Galatians, starting from verse 22, and we will read till verse 11 of chapter 4. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but... It will give us a better context of what Paul is talking about here. Verse 22, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under tutor. But you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by father, the father. 
so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God has sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Well, our passage today is going to be from verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4. And if you would like to break this passage in three parts, which is naturally breaks into three parts, we're going to look at three things. The first thing is that we're going to look at is our desperate need before conversion. Desperate need, a slave state of slavery before conversion. The second one we will look at as the gracious act of God in redemption and adoption. And lastly, we're going to look at the glorious benefit in adoption itself. And one thing I'd like to drive this one point to you today is that God has sent his son in order to free his chosen ones from slavery, bringing them to adoption and leading them as beloved children in eternity. He has sent his son in order to free us from slavery in order to bring us into adoption and lead us all the way into eternity as children, as beloved children. So take a look. Before we continue on and look at verse 1, I'd like to give you a little bit of a background of what has been going on in the context of Galatians. Remember, the book of Galatians was written at about, I believe, 45 A.D. somewhere. But it was... Paul, who actually traveled in his first missionary journey and has visited cities like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, which, is, which are in the southern portion of Galatia and has spread the gospel to them. He was speaking to them, sharing the gospel that salvation comes from faith by grace. Many Gentiles have believed there. Churches have been formed and Paul continued on but guess what? Every time Paul goes, there are these heretics, these Judaizers who would be following after him, and they would be speaking opposite. They would say, sure, Christ is good, Jesus is good, Messiah is good, but you have to become a Jew. You have to be proselytized in order to become a Jew, and then you take Christ, and then you go on, and you be saved, and you please God through this. So Paul, hearing how much they have accepted with such freedom, they accepted this heresy, he sends them this letter. And this letter is probably one of the most severe rebukes. You know, when you get a letter and you hear being called in the letter fool on a couple of occasions, it's a very severe 
letter because it speaks about the very fundamentals, the gospel of salvation. So Paul is being extremely strict, and he says, you have to reject that. You foolish Galatians, you have to reject that doctrine. And therefore, he expresses that and defends the justification by faith alone and warns these churches how, how on the dangerous path they are if they continue to follow this. So as we come to chapter 4, even in chapter 3, verse 29, he says this, And if you belong to Christ, that is, if you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are Abraham's descendants. If you have done that by faith, it automatically sets you as a descendant of Abraham who has earned his righteousness by faith, not by works. And therefore, you're an, an heir according to the promise. Not because you have earned this, but because you were given the promise. And therefore, you are an heir. And now in chapter 4, Paul continues on and says this. But let me tell you where you came from. Before you became an heir, you were living according to the law. And you were living in this very desperate state from which you have been freed. So when we look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which is giving us this state where the Christian was before the conversion, it describes that the state was actually very much enslaving. If Galatians would ever thought that this was a good and it was getting us close and we were getting closer, no, it was the state where you were bound by the law, you were bound by sin, and therefore you were enslaved before you became a believer, a Christian. So where he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Let me explain to you what Paul is saying. He brings up this example that was very relevant in, back in the days. For anyone who is raising child for those day and age, whether they are from the Roman background, whether they are from a Jewish background or Greek background, they were raising a child understanding that the child would be a minor. A minor until the certain day that comes. For example, in the Jewish community, by the way, they practice this even today's day in traditional Jewish community, that the child is a minor, immature, until he turns 12 years old. After 12th year birthday, the child is brought into the synagogue, and for the first time, he's proclaimed to be a son of the law. In fact, let me give you exact name behind that. Well, don't worry about it because I can't find it. <laughs> um, but he would be called a son of the law. So the father would be passing him from the direct supervision and now would lay his responsibility upon this child and say, now you are to keep the law and you are responsible to God by sticking to the law itself. In the Greek culture, it would be the same. Around the age of 14, 
Uh, Greeks would have this festival, and the child would be turned to the society, and society would have this a little bit, a period of about two years where they would have a military-style training, and then he would be called a man, a grown-up man. We don't have that, by the way. We have this period of about 15 years where the child sort of becomes a man, and he's still not sure whether he's a man or not. But back in the days, it would very, very be precise. In Roman society, in Roman society, it wouldn't be exact, but it would be around between the ages of 16 and 18 where the child would become a man. It would be a specific day. It would be a festival called Liberalia, held annually where the child would be brought, with a boy or girl, and he would lay his toy, this a ball would be brought by a child as a symbol, a doll would be brought by a girl and would be laid to this uh, god, Apollos, and it would mean that, hey, I'm setting aside the childish things and I am now am true heir of this father who is mine. Now I am the son, I'm the true heir. And in this sense now, the Paul takes us to chapter 4 and he says, in the same way, You who have believed, before you have believed, you were not heirs. You were heirs, but you were these immature people. You were these children, not sons, but minors. And these minors have never been considered as children. And he says, look, from an outside, when you observe within this high-status societal family... You watch this child who is a minor and how he behaves himself. And he has other slaves within this community, within this household. And they're taking care of him as guardians and managers. They're actually guarding him. They're telling him what to do, what to eat, when to sleep, when to play, what to study. So in some sense, these slaves who are guardians and managers, in some way, they look like they have more freedom than this child does. But this child is actually an heir. This child, when he becomes an adult, when he actually accepts Christ by faith, he becomes an heir. And that is the difference. So Paul says, listen, if you have enjoyed that time, that period of time where you were under the law, you were enslaved. You were like a slave. You were bound by this law. You were bound by these elemental things of the world. If you look at verse 3, you were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, what does Paul mean by elemental things of the world? I like the way David Guzik explains. These elemental things of the world, they are like ABCs or like one, two, threes. When you go to school and you learn these very basic things, right? You learn how to count. You learn how the alphabet. These are very fundamental things. And he says, look at what Guzik says. He says, these ABCs of the world that we must break free from and that is stressed in pagan religion just as much as Jewish law. It is the principle of cause and effect. The principle of cause and effect. If you look at any religion, including the doctrine of Jewish religion, it is all based on cause and effect type of principle. You do good, you're going to receive good. You do bad, 
you're going to receive bad. In every religion, it is, they're operated by these essential, or not essential, but elemental things of the world. In every religion, they show up. I mean, take a look at Buddhism. It is karma, right? And in Hinduism, it is karma. You do whatever you have done in the past, and whatever you do now will actually determine what kind of life you're going to live in the future after you become some other animal or some other person, right? It is karma, they call it. In the Jewish law, it is the same, that you were given rules. You do this, you do not do this, you do that. And according to how you fulfill this law, you are going to get the future. Let me take you even to just the verse that we read, chapter, eight, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 8. Where he says, verse 9, How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Those are the rules. Now you got to go to church on this day. Now you got to be, make sure it's a full moon. You do this for the full moon, right? These are elemental things. They are enslaving you is what Paul is saying here. Now, if you, uh, I'll, text, I'll read you a text from Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Again, it is basically a principle of cause and effect. This is what the elementary things of the world are. What Paul says here is that you got to flee from that. In fact, you were freed from those elementary principles. You were under the bondage. Now, if you are not under the law of Moses, which most of us here, we came out not of the Jewish families and we were not converted from the Jewish families. We were Gentiles. But we still live by the elemental things of the world because we have been given a law within our heart. We have been given conscience that tells us that either approves us or convicts us. And we were living by them. We were trying to live up and trying to keep up to the standard that God has placed into our hearts. I'm going to do this. Well, I feel bad if I do this. Well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to avoid doing this. Oh, I failed again. Oh, my conscience is now killing me, right? Every human being has been given the law within the heart. And by this law... He's being bound. It is an enslaved state. On the other hand, grace of God is not like that. We're not called to this enslaved state. We're not to worship God as enslaved state. Adoption gives us this grace where you say, yes, you have done this. Yes, you deserve this. But you're going to get something else. You're going to get grace. You're going to get a blessing. Because you're not putting your faith and your trust in yourself, in the works, but you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is the state is very enslaving, but it's also very damning. It's damning. It's not just that you feel enslaved, but it is taking you all the way to hell. In Galatians, if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
Oh, you can't keep up with that law? Yes, you're enslaved. You can't keep up with it? You broke something? You're going to pay for that. You're cursed. You will be going to hell for that. So it is damning. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. In verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. It was leading us to hell. It is a damning state before our salvation. Lastly, it is a very preparatory state. Paul says, is the law bad then? No, it is good. It is good in several ways. Number one, it prepared us, first of all, by defining our sins. Defining, even though everyone has a law of their heart within, the law of Moses, it defined things. This is bad. This is what God hates. This is good. To the very fundamental, very detailed way. It, next, it actually allowed us to see that we are definitely breaking the law. No question about that. You have broken the law again and again and again. It condemns us. The law condemns us. But also, as we've read, it's like a tutor. It prepares us for something that is glorious, that is sonship, that is adoption, that is belonging to the family of God. So it is enslaving, it is this damning, but yet it is preparatory, and it is a very desperate state that we were in. And it says that God has sent his son in order to free us from this state. And take a look with me in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He sent his son in order to free us, but then he sent his son in order to perform this act of adoption. Now, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the doctrine of adoption, there is a great difference. When we look at the passages where God is mentioned as a father, he is not mentioned in the way he's mentioned in the New Testament. You don't see psalmists throughout the psalms just cry out to God, Father, Abba, right? They don't do that. Even though God is called Father on many occasions in the Old Testament, a lot of times it is referred to him as Father being creator of all things. Of all human beings, he's the father. Of everyone, believers and unbelievers. And some occasions he calls Israel his son. Right? He calls Israel. But the adoption and the relationship that we have through Jesus Christ, it is glorious. It is something that is even higher, I believe, that is even higher than what Adam had before his fall. Let me take you just... Flip a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 1. We read it at the beginning of the service. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as son through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to praise of the glory of his grace, 
Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose us and predestined us to adoption through him. That is, through Jesus Christ. Some people would say, well, Adam, even as he's mentioned in this genealogy in chapter 3 of Luke, of Luke, he goes from Jesus going back to Joseph and on and on and on, and he goes all the way to um, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Even in that respect, I believe that Adam, prior to the fall, likely, in my opinion, has not had this beautiful, intimate relation, father-son relationship that he had until Jesus is coming. Because it is through Jesus Christ that we have even superior adoption, even superior relationship between, G, between God and ourselves through Jesus Christ himself. So it is because of love. It is because of God's love that he has adopted us. It says that out of his kind intention of his will, and he did so in the fullness of time, as we read in Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, at the perfect timing, according to God's view, perfect timing. And people may say this perfect timing, it was for several reasons. Some would say, well, it's because Alexander the Great has spread the Roman kingdom and everybody, most of the world at that time, were able to speak and understand and read Greek. And that's what Jesus came specifically at the time so that the gospel would be spread. Perhaps, perhaps. Some people would say it's because the nation of Israel has, has come out of Babylon and they're no longer under this idolatry. They finally began to worship the only God, the Creator. Maybe, perhaps. But it basically says that at the perfect time, in the fullness of time, according to God's view, He decides to send His Son. Notice that it speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. He doesn't create His Son. He sends His Son. It's according to in, in relationship to John 17, 5, where he says, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before even we decided to create this world, the glory that I had with you, please, Father, glorify me with that glory. It speaks of eternality of Jesus Christ, his deity. And notice Christ's humanity now where he says God's son was born of a woman, of a woman. His stepfather Joseph is not even mentioned here. The child was conceived through the Holy Spirit. It pointed also to the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Jesus was sent in order to redeem us. Jesus sent in order to redeem us. The third, he, we saw his deity. We saw his humanity. And look at his subjection. God's son was born under the law. He subjects himself to the same conditions that you and I were under. Under the law. Look at the word under, how it's repeated in verse 22, we're under, the, under sin in chapter 3. 3.23, it says under the law. 4.2, under guardians. 
4.3, under the elemental things of the world, and now Jesus was born under the law in order so that he might redeem those who were under the law. He subjects himself, being 100% God, in his full deity, being able to fulfill the law to the fullest, also being 100% man in order for him to be qualified to redeem us, to take the sin of the world upon himself and to die, and also to provide his righteousness for the people. He submits himself under the law to do that in order to redeem those who are under the law. You can clearly see his plan, clearly see the plan and action. Father sends his son to become, to take on flesh, to become a human being in order to recover this possession that he had once had. Recover this ownership by a payment, by a payment of his only begotten son with the life of his only begotten son, pure life, pure blood. The question then becomes, wouldn't this be enough? Wouldn't this be enough for God to say, I'm going to free you. You're now my slave. I bought you. Just hang out with me. You're not going to go to hell. Wouldn't that be enough? Taking us as criminals to pure, spending, shedding pure blood of his son, Jesus taking his son, our sins upon himself, giving us this righteousness. We being justified, even converted, given faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be enough? I think it would be a little over too much already, probably. But he does something else. Now, let me give you this example. In the United States, as most of you know, there is this law of federal pardon. In the Constitution of the United States, there is a law that allows the President of the United States to issue a pardon to whomever he pleases. Whoever has committed a criminal act of some sort and have been convicted, and um, the President, any President, is able to issue this pardon and say, you know what? You're pardoned. You no longer have to serve your term. You don't need to be executed. You're pardoned. And every president in the, in the history of the United States has issued multiple pardons. Anywhere between several hundreds to several thousands for some of the presidents. Our president, Donald Trump, has so far issued about 20 of these pardons so far. And there's no limit. No limit to how many pardons he can issue. And you can imagine yourself being that criminal who has been convicted, let's say, of a murder and being serving your time in prison, or me, maybe being on the death row. And there's a president, President Donald Trump gives you a call and says, John, you know, I wanted to pardon you. I'm issuing you a pardon. Your record is clean. And this is what happens. Your record is clean. You don't need to serve time. Get back to your family. You're good to go. Can you imagine how you would feel? Uh, you would be, Mr. President, I know you don't, there, there are millions, I mean, uh, as far as I know, hundreds of thousands of prisoners in the United States, and you chose me 
in order to redeem me, in order to pardon me from this, from the prison? It's a show, you would show gratitude, but none of you would imagine something like this, where the president calls you and says, John, I, I thought about it. I'm going to pardon you, but also I want you to come to my White House. In fact, if you don't mind, I'm, I filed papers. I want to adopt you. You're going to be my, my child. You're going to be my son. You're going to be eating at the table with me. We're going to play golf together. We're going to work. We're going to do some things together. And guess what? Everything that I have, it's yours. Everything that I own is yours. Come over, get to know my family, get to know my wife, get to know my kids. This is the relationship I want to have with you. Would you imagine something like this? We would say, Mr. President, are you crazy? Do you know who this person is? Do you know what he has done? And God says, I know every intention of his heart, not only what he has done. And I want him to be part of my family. I want him to share everything that I have. I want him to know me to the fullest. It would be, even wouldn't even give it enough credit if we compare our president to God and what he has done. Remember, we have a creator of a universe, sustainer of every living and non-living thing, who is a perfect God in his morality, who is completely independent on anyone. He does not need you or me, and yet he decides to send his only begotten son to rescue us. Jesus coming in, he humbles himself and he takes the form of a slave. He says, I will be that slave. The president says, by the way, that term, don't worry about it. My son is going to sit, serve that term instead of you. Right? Jesus sent, was sent in order to take the payment that you and I were supposed to take. He forgives our sins that were committed, not against someone else. He commits, he forgives the sins that were committed against him personally and against his son. He regenerates us, giving us new life through new birth. He shares his divine nature with us. He proclaims us to be innocent. And then on top of all, he invites us into his family and he says, I want you to sit next to me. Just like my natural son, Jesus Christ, I want you to have everything that I have. I want you to be able to share it with me. Isn't that, that wonderful? This is what John says in 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. It is a beautiful, beautiful act that the Lord has done through His Son. He has freed us from slavery. He has brought us, He has redeemed us, bought us out of this slavery market. And he has adopted us now. And now, as his children, we're able to share so many glorious benefits in Christ. And he's going to share that even into eternity, giving us unspeakable inheritance in the future. In salvation, as we talk about these benefits, we have been regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit we have been converted. We have been given, given faith and we have been given repentance. And now we have been adopted. 
it's very hard to tell the order of things when which has happened. As far as we know, it happened back in the days, and how the Lord did it, we don't know, but the Scripture defines every aspect of salvation and how it is separate. We were regenerated. We were converted. And now we were adopted. We were adopted by respondents to the call. Uh, excuse me. We were adopted by the work of the Father, by faith, as we have read. Um, it is a legal act in which God gives us to those who receive Christ the right to be called children of God, as we read in John chapter 1. We get it through faith in Christ. And take a look in Galatians chapter 4. The first and the greatest blessing of our adoption is that we receive Holy Spirit in our hearts. We receive Holy Spirit of our adoption in our hearts. Take a look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Because, take a look at a verse. I'll read you from verse uh, 15 of Romans chapter 8, parallel passage. Paul writes, we have received the spirit of adoption as the son by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This term, Abba, is an Aramaic term that is a term of endearment. This is, some people would say it, Daddy, or it speaks of this intimate and tender relationship that Father has with the son, Father has with the child, with the daughter. It's the same term that Jesus Christ, it's used here in Galatians, it's used in Romans, and it's used once more in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, where Jesus, being in the Garden of Gethsemane, was calling out to his Father, Abba, Abba. Look what John MacArthur says, it's nothing short of staggering to think that we who were once alienated from God because of our sin have been given the privilege of crying out to the Father in the very same way that His beloved Son did. As Jesus was able to call out to His Father, we are able to call out, cry out to Him. It is because we are His sons that He was given us the Spirit. It is through the Spirit that He shows us His compassion. He gives us protection provision. He helps us understand His Word. He helps us understand that we are His children. It is His Spirit within us telling us our own spirit that we belong to Him. It is because we are children of God that we have many other, many other privileges. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. By the way, you notice how in New Testament, Jesus immediately says, you know, people, disciples says, teach us how to pray. And they said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, our Father immediately. He says in Matthew 7, 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts, you earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, heavenly Father who is in heaven, give you what is good to those who ask him? Imagine that relationship. In Matthew 6, 26, we read, your Father feeds the birds. How much more are you important than the birds? Wouldn't you, wouldn't he care for you? In Psalm 103, read that he knows our weak frame. He understands how sick and how needy we are. He knows exactly what we need in Luke chapter 12, verse 30. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, when he disciplines us, he does so with love. 
He disciplines us in order to mold us, to transform us, to make us more holy like Him. He does so with love. Lastly, we read in verse 7. He says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are a son and you are an heir. On top of all the privileges that we have now as heirs, of all the benefits that we have through Jesus Christ, we have something that is prepared for us even into the future. First of all, eternal life is given because we are in Christ as heirs with Christ. When you look at human relations, sons and daughters inherit the estate of their parents when they pass on. We had no such rightful claim. We only depend on Jesus Christ and He, out of His grace, has adopted us as children. He says, I'm going to give you this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is stored for you in heaven. It is a glorious thing that we get to look forward to. Everything that Christ has received, being the Son of God, and He's entitled to everything, has been given to us. He, we're seated next to Him. To God. That's why we're nothing close to what the angels are because we are children of God. We're so much closer to God than anyone else in His creation. Everything is the Father's, is Christ, and because we're in Christ, it is ours. It is one of the greatest, one of the greatest inheritances is this glorified body that we read. It is part of our future adoption that we look forward to consummation of our adoption as sons and daughters at the redemption of our bodies in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. So it is a glorious doctrine. It is a joy-bringing doctrine of adoption. But it has many, many applications even to us today. You know, for those of you, and I want to call out to you, my friend, who has never put your faith fully in Christ as Lord and Savior. Let me tell you, you are not living as a free person. You are a slave. You are a slave to the law. Perhaps you're not abiding to the law of Moses, but you're a slave to the law that God has put in your heart. Maybe you're a slave to the law that you created for yourself by looking around and watching people do things, and you say, I want to be good. And I have been trying to be good. And I haven't really hurt anyone. I haven't stolen anything major. Let me tell you, you are a slave to that law. Come to Him. There's a reason why God has sent His Son in order to free you from that slavery. In order to adopt you into His family. In order to call you His Son. Even if you have tried your best. Perhaps you're someone who has, coming, has come to church for years. And have tried to keep up with all the rules and all this outward appearance. And tried to fulfill the law. Let me tell you, you're a slave. Unless you trust fully in sonship. In the works of Jesus Christ. I'd like to share with you an example from the life of John Wesley. John Wesley was this, you've heard of the name 
very famous English theologian, evangelist, preacher. He began the Methodist movement in the 18th century. And his story goes like this, very interesting. You know, he was born into a family. Um, his parents, his dad was a preacher. His parents were devout Christians. They had 19 children, nine of which have survived. Ten of them have died in infancy. Um, and John was born into this family, and he was taught and educated very vigorously. From the young age, he was taught Greek, Latin, Bible. They had, he has to memorize portions of the New Testament at a and he was tested by his mother every evening, every evening. At, a late, at the age of 11, he was sent to a school. And his education began and it continued on for the next 14 years. When he was in late 20s, he was a fellow at Oxford University. And when he was in Oxford University, he um, was leading this club, holy club. And it's interesting, let me read you a little bit about this club. The group met daily for six, from 6 until 9 for prayer, psalms, and reading of the Greek New Testament. They prayed every waking hour for several minutes and each day for a special virtue. While the church's prescribed attendance was only three times a year, they took communion every Sunday. One author wrote that he would fulfill the Sabbath, and then he would be also fulfilled the Sunday, the first day, the Lord's Day on Sunday. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays until 3 o'clock, as was commonly observed in the ancient church. In 1730, the group began the practice of visiting prisoners in jail. They preached, educated, relieved jail debtors whenever possible, and cared for the sick went on for several years like this. In the e now, at some point, John Wesley was sent to America to be this missionary to the Indians. And his missionary trip did not go well. Two years later, he comes back to England, and he is depressed. He's depressed. Things didn't go well. And he attends this um, church at one evening. And at this church service, someone was reading the preface to the Romans by Luther. And if you remember, Martin Luther was converted as he studied Galatians and Romans. In fact, he got converted two years after he wrote 95 Theses. So this is now John, oh, uh, John, John Wesley is now listening to this preface. And look what he says. In the, he says this, about a quarter before nine, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He at one point said, he and his companions were bound in the chains of their own self-righteous religion and not fully trusting Christ. They were trusting in their works for their salvation. At that point, the point of his conversion, he looked back and he said this. Speaking of the Holy Club, he says, I had then 
the faith of a slave and not of a son. Let me tell you, brother and sister, test your heart. Test if you have the Holy Spirit within you who cries out, Abba, Father. If you truly know God as your Father, not this judge who you always have to appease by the things that you do, always trying to please him. There is room for elemental things, but you cannot rely on that for your appeasement to our God because you're a son. And if you do, repent, be freed, come to him who wants to be your father. Adoption has many implications for you and me if you already know God as your father. Many implications. It does affect your prayer life. When you go to prayer, remember that he is your father. Remember that he knows who you are. He knows what you need. He knows your pains. Cry out to him like a child. It affects your personal dealing of your sin. You're not like a slave like Cain who runs away when he has committed sin. He cries out to, cry out to the father. Cry out to him and say, Lord, your grace is enough to pay for this sin and I have failed again. And I pray to you, Lord, free me from this. Help me to walk by the spirit that you have placed within me. Help me not to walk by flesh. When you relate to your children, remember, remember how patient your father is to you. Remember how much he forgives, how he deals with your sins over and over, sometimes for years before you change. And he doesn't spank you every single time just to get you. There is place for spanking. There is place for spanking. But there is this compassion and love for your children, even when you spank. It affects how you relate to your spiritual brothers and sisters. Remember, you don't have patience for him. God, who is your father, has patience for your brother or sister. Don't give up. Have patience. How dare you? Who gives you the right not to have patience when your father has patience toward his child? We are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It will affect your witness. It will affect your witness because you will not just preach to them God who is only just and hates sin. Not only one who will send you to hell, but you will also preach on top of that your relationship that you personally have with the Father through Jesus Christ. So God has sent His Son in order to free us, His chosen ones, from slavery, bring them to adoption, and lead us as beloved children into eternity. Please pray with me. God, we thank You. Father, we thank You. We're amazed through the word that you have given us how much you love us. We're amazed how none of us deserve it. We're amazed that we are nothing, and yet you have given us everything. We will be amazed for, for eternity, enjoying that fellowship and intimacy without sin, without this flesh, being in your presence at all times. We will enjoy that 
results of adoption being your children forever. And we look forward to that. We thank you. Thank you for giving us your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.